You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I absolutely adore this piece for so many reasons. And I just think, what's the point? I, I get that joke. I understood that reference. <laughs> I feel like who art Ed? Let's try to slice it. Who art is Mr. Wood art Ed me? <laughs> Either way, it, it, can be, it works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome. In every episode, we are going to look at art in three parts. In situ, where we're going to look at the context in which it was created. In gallery, where we're going to have a discussion closely examining one specific masterpiece. And finally, in studio, where we will share our takeaways. So today I am here with Highlands Elementary's LC director extraordinaire, Mr. Kressel. Great to be here. And we are going to be looking at Georges Seurat's Sunday on La Grande Jatte. See, this is where I lose like all my pretentiousness street cred as we find out that I do not really speak French and cannot pull off the accent. I might as well just fully butcher it and Americanize it like Sunday on La Grande Jatte. A Sunday on La Grande Jatte or Sunday on La Grande Jatte. It's a Sunday in the park. Um, it is the pointillist masterpiece from 1884 by George Surratt. Uh, currently housed at the Art Institute of Chicago, my old alma mater. Now for our in situ segment. It just gives us some context. It's about the artist and where this came Where this all came from. And I think it's really important when looking at an artist or their work to think about the original context in which it was created. So George Surratt was painting at the end of the 19th century. The Sunday afternoon painting came about, um, he started it in 1884, and he finished painting it around May of 1886. So he spent about two years working on this painting. And in the process, he created numerous drawings or studies along the way to creating this final masterpiece. The finished work is two by three meters, which is seven by 10 feet. So seven feet tall, 10 feet wide, and it is all composed of those tiny little dots. Surratt was a pointillist, although in his time he liked the term divisionism for his approach of painting, uh, focusing on small individual dots 
of different hues that were juxtaposed or put next to each other and the human eye would blend those colors from a distance. He wasn't blending them with his paintbrush, he chose to use the viewer's eye and optics to blend the colors. And this is kind of an interesting development in painting that I think coincides nicely with a bit of the science at the time. The 19th century was a time of um, a lot of innovation, a lot of progress scientifically. Uh, the mid-19th century is when Daguerre made his photographic process available to everyone. So at that time, there was a lot of interest and a lot of focus on optics and the ways that images are created. Uh, Seurat was really interested in optics or the way that, that we see things. Just like impressionists in general were interested in optics and the way we see and the way we perceive light and color, one advancement that seems very, very simple in terms of technology, but it was a game changer for artists, was the tube of paint. That's another invention that came about in the, in the 19th century. Prior to the tube of paint, artists would often use a pig's bladder to hold their paints, or they would use sometimes glass jars. Now the problem with the, the bladder system was aside from the ick factor, there is just a limited shelf life. Generally, you know, your paints would dry out within about two days of that. Um, with the glass jars, it becomes really cumbersome and really hard to travel with that. So when tubes of paint came around, that were mass produced in a wide array of colors and they were portable, um, that's when you saw a shift where more artists liked to get out of their studio and paint in plain air. Um, you know, they went out to the park to, to make a study of what people were doing on a Sunday afternoon. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now for our in-gallery segment, we're going to have a discussion looking more carefully at One Piece. Let's start off. With just first impressions, what do we think of this piece? Uh, what I see here is a uh, looks like a lot of different people who are near a park. 
Uh, there's some water. They all kind of seem to be doing their own thing. A lot of relaxing going on in here. Uh, they're very well dressed uh, all over. It doesn't look like it's any time current. See, I just look at this and I think, like, what's the point? Get it? Like pointillism? Oh, ah. yeah. Well, Surat was pointillism. So I wonder if it part of it is just like a proof of concept. Like we can do big, huge um, works like this using tiny, tiny little dots. Uh, I don't have the patience for creating that type of artwork. So I wonder if for Surat that was part of it. So I'm going to be honest. I would not have the patience for this kind of thing either. Um, I believe that this took about two years to paint because the overall piece is 10 feet wide um, and it is all painted with tiny little dots. A part of this is he was really interested in color theory and some books that were written by chemists about how you could, um, I believe it was in the, in the context of restoring tapestries and things like that, but a chemist wrote about how you couldn't match the color on its own, you had to match it uh, relative to what was around it, because as the colors sort of mixed, your eye would blend them, and like two near colors would optically mix to create like a third color. Well, and that makes a lot of sense with what we know about how color works in all types of print now. Back in those days, this was kind of proof of concept. If you ever look at yeah. comic strips or uh, really close up at certain pieces uh, under a microscope, even you can see it's the same kind of concept happening. You have different dots that are actually next to each other that are combined to give the eye the appearance of a specific color. And that's basically the same thing we have happening when we look at like the pixels on our screens. Um, and I like that microscope analogy because um, it sort of has to do with how Surratt thought of this as divisionism. Um, that is the term that he used, uh, sort of thinking about dividing it up into smaller and smaller and smaller chunks of pigment that were then optically mixed. Uh, it also kind of lends itself to this discussion of fugitiveness within art and the idea of being able to seek that color and where is it and how do we um, get it to where we want to do it. It's hard to capture sometimes. Did you and I listen to the same NPR story this morning? We sure did. <laughs> but I felt about, very, very smart saying it. About fugitive colors in the pastel world. Well, and I think this uh, portrait, or I'm sorry, this landscape really lends itself to that when, when you bring in that idea of the chemistry of it. How do we uh, capture those colors that we're really, really looking for when we're doing dots that are really hard to see and and then stepping back and looking forward at it in terms of scale uh, I think about the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off which you know, can only see when your parents are with you um, if he it continues to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in you really start to see the separation of color but when you stand back you get this completely different viewpoint on this painting. It really is sort of like the original old school lo-fi like 8-bit graphic celebration of color and painting in art um, and just for context, to be, to when we say old school, we're talking about the uh, mid to late 19th century is when he was painting. Um, now, shifting a little bit from how this was made and how he painted it and just the ridiculous dedication he had to painting this with tiny, tiny little dots... What do you think the overall point of this? Like, <laughs> you got to stop what? saying point. <laughs> but why would he spend two years painting this particular composition? Why would he make it on this scale, do you think? Well, I think there's two reasons for it. One, 
the artist proof of conception, like the proof of concept. I can do this, it can be done, and it can be successful. I think that's a really important key to say, he's trying something new. Surratt was kind of a pioneer in this field. He wasn't the only one experimenting with this, but he wanted to show that this type of art could be done on a large scale and could be really successful. The other thing I think about when I look at this is I think he's trying to do some commentary on what society is like at this time. Uh, we're in France. I don't, I, I don't remember off the top of my head when this painting was completed. Do you 1817? Exact year, I don't know. This is in line with the Impressionist movement, which was the late 19th century. Okay, so late 1800s. Late 1800s, yes. And, um, you know, one of the things when you talk about society at that time, one of the shifts that happened with the Impressionists was they started painting just what and who they saw around them in everyday life. So this is sort of what a gathering of people would do in their leisure on a Sunday afternoon. And while to us that seems like, well, of course, you're going to paint what you observe around you in your everyday life, um, that was in some ways a shift from previous conceptions of what I'm painting on a large scale should be someone and something of massive historical importance. So it was the shift to the everyman. So this is basically like the Instagram, social media, this is what's going on in my life today shift in art. Yes. As opposed to like sitting down for a school picture. This is like, hey, I'm at the park today. What's up? Yes, except instead of snapping a selfie in a fraction of a second, he spent two years and made like 50 or 60 rough drafts before he like before completing this final work. Well, we're still looking at it today, Mr. Woods. So I think that's something to kind of really keep in mind that, yes, he created this in this idea, but we're still talking about it. It is, it is interesting. It does sort of hold our... our um, attention today. It holds a spot of prominence in the Art Institute of Chicago um, and, as you said, prominence in pop culture with one of my favorites from my teenage years. Um, now, if you could take it out of the Art Institute, where would you like to see this painting? That's an interesting question. I, I think one of the when I look at this painting, I, the one, I'm always drawn to the girl in the middle because she is the only one that's facing us. Everyone else is to the left, to the right, or their backs are to us. And I, I, and I wonder if that's just, I know it's on purpose. I, just, I, I think that it draws kids in as well. When I say, hey, look at this. This is the only one that's really paying any attention to us. Uh, I, I could see this in um, a children's museum. I could see this hanging in a, a mural format or a print format in a, walking into or near parks because I think it trying to, captures the spirit of a park is for everyone. We're all here. We're all allowed to go to the park. There's no fees. There's no charges to get in and be like, hey, uh, $2 to get into the park today. It's sunshine and trees are free here. That's interesting because I, I agree this to me feels like it should be a public art. It should be a mural somewhere. Like I could totally, I would love to see this like as the backdrop to the Crown Fountain in Millennium Park or something like that. Um, I, I find it funny. You're, you're drawn to the little girl in the center. I'm drawn to her too, but mostly out of frustration because I feel like <laughs> she is confronting the viewer and yet... 
her face is so low contrast and the features are so so poorly defined like i I wish there were just a little bit more contrast, some darker shadows. But so that's the see. idea of the impressionism. That's where the impressionist piece comes in. I also wonder if it's the idea of politeness in this times of society. Everyone else is averting their eyes or looking away, but as a child, that naivete, she's like, what is this guy doing? You know, he's kind of staring at us. Like, we know that little kids will do sometimes when we're trying. Everyone else is like, shh, we don't say that, or we don't do that, or say excuse me. And you get the little kids who come in and say things. Maybe this is Surratt's way of having, you know, that uh, defiant child. It could be. Or it could just be that we're both wrong, and she's just looking at the woman with the pet monkey. Because yeah. that's pretty awesome, and I don't know how we've gone this long without talking about her. I mean, who doesn't love a pet monkey? And now for our in-studio segment. In-studio Think about what strategies are worth. Take it. Good Make artists. it your own. Copy. Great artists. Steal. Just go ahead. Steal this art. Make it your own. These are the takeaways. This is what you can apply to your own work. So the first takeaway that I had with this piece is the dedication to the craft. Uh, Mr. Wood, you talked about how there were so many different drafts of this piece that he did along the way to create this large, large piece. And I think if there's anything that you can spend that much time on and that much dedication to it, that persistence, that vision that you have, it deserves to be a piece of art that withstands the test of time. And one thing I would point out, if you enjoy pointillism, I'm saying point way too many times, but if you enjoy pointillism and want to explore this technique, you might consider using the back of your brush to make dots because you can get tighter, more defined dots using the handle of the brush um, to, to dot the paint instead of the bristles on the brush. I think I can't be on a podcast without talking about literacy and the understanding of how do we translate stories because stories are all around us. So the other takeaway that I had for this piece was the story, trying to interpret this story for us. We look at graphic novels, we look at picture books, we find ways to tell our own story within this story. And so when I look at this beautiful, because I still love it, uh, piece, uh, I see different stories happening. And of course, I mentioned that my eye is drawn to the girl. I want to know what her story is. Is she being defiant? Is it just because Surratt decided to include somebody like that to tell us, hey, we can do faces too, and this is the landscape, or not landscape, but impressionist version of it? There's a, a lot of stories in here. In fact, I, I forgot to mention, you know this has been turned into a stage play musical type piece, right? Uh, yes, this has been adapted in many, many ways. It is popped up in movies, on the stage, and in children's cartoons that my young ones watch. And, you know, on that note of what I hear you saying is you like seeing action that are stories, but also a little bit of ambiguity so that the, the, the viewer like the reader can use their imagination to interpret it in different ways. I, I would love, great. I would love for, I know there's a lot of references to this. I would love to see what students come up to tell the story of this picture. Who are these characters? Pick someone out of here and write about it. Yeah. And I guess the final takeaway that I'm going to point out is I think it is a good strategy for an artist to put unexpected details in to draw people's attention, like a woman with a pet monkey. Let's end it with that. Absolutely. Art, it would really be great. Dun, 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 dun. And I got my intro right yeah, there. Yeah, Thank you're you. You're welcome.
Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>